Let's bow together now as we come to our time in God's Word. Father, thank you for the challenge of your Word. We look forward to what you're going to say to us today in this time. Minister to our spirits. Holidays are busy, and for many they are difficult. Meet us where we are today. Minister to us through your word by your Holy Spirit. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're continuing in our study of the Gospel of Mark. We've reached the midway point at the end of chapter 8 here. There's only 16 chapters in the book. But you need to understand, chapter 8 going into chapter 9 is not just the first and second half of the book. This is the transitional moment of the book as well. For two-plus years, Jesus has been ministering in villages and in cities and healing people and preaching. And now, all of a sudden, in the second half, the last six months of his public ministry, he now begins to focus not so much on the public ministry, but on the training of his 12, getting them ready because they're going to be taking over after he dies, he's resurrected, and he returns to heaven. This last six months is a special focus on their lives and getting them ready. Jesus is on the northern section above where Galilee is, and he begins at this point a slow, steady transition down south, down to Jerusalem, where he will carry that cross. He knows full well what is coming. He's preparing his disciples. In fact, in today's passage, he even begins that preparation by sharing with his disciples what's going to happen to him, and they are blown away. They cannot believe it. The passage we're looking at today is at the end of Mark chapter 8. I'm beginning to read in verse 27. You'll find this to be a very challenging passage. It's very clear about who Jesus is. It's very clear about his mission and what he came to do. And then it's very clear about the implications of that to your life and my life as followers, as disciples of Jesus. Very challenging passage to us. Put your seatbelts on. Get ready. It's coming. I'm reading starting in verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples, and he said, If any man would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever 
loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. This is God's word. May he add his blessing to the reading of it. And now it's my privilege to be able to comment on the text and try to get you to think more deeply about what it is Jesus is saying here. I want to begin in verses 27 to 30 by talking about the understanding that is actually understanding Jesus. This is the section where Peter says, uh, answers Jesus' question and says, you're the Christ. This is who he is. He's the Christ. <clears throat> Passage begins in verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. Now, in the New Testament, there's one more, more than one Caesarea, but there's only one Caesarea Philippi, northern side of Galilee. This is the point of transition in his life and ministry. And Jesus begins heading for Jerusalem at this point. This is actually a great place to ask the two questions that I've highlighted in yellow. Who do people say, who do people say that I am, Jesus asks. And also, who do you say that I am? This is a great place to ask the question from the strategic moment that Jesus is now beginning to focus more clearly on his disciples and getting them ready. But it's also geographically a great place to ask the question. Caesarea Philippi was a Roman city known for paganism, and around it were villages with Jewish people. So Jesus, as he walks through the area with both Jew and Gentile and paganism and everything else going on, so who do these people think I am? I've been ministering in this area for a couple of years now. I've been performing miracles. I've been preaching. Who do they say that I am? And then after the replies of the disciples, he says, but who do you say that I am? And he goes right to work on them, and he begins to teach them. We'll get to his mission in a few moments. But at this point, note the two questions. Who do people say that I am? That's the first question. Who do these people all around that I've been ministering to now for two years, who do they say that I am? And the disciples sort of respond. Uh, there's three different responses. One says, uh, you're John the Baptist. And another says, no, you're Elijah. And some of them say, no, you're one of the prophets. And think about each of those, John the Baptist. We know one who held to that, and that was Herod, because Herod had killed John, and he's probably feeling guilty, thinking John came back from the dead. Some of the people in the area thought this was Elijah, the one who was to come to announce the way for the Messiah. Elijah was the one in the Old Testament that never died. He was raptured out on a chariot. They think he's coming back. Old Testament prophecies. The third option, one of the other prophets. Actually, this story is told in two of the other Gospels as well. Matthew and Luke. And if you look at the Matthew situation, in Matthew it's really clear 
One of the prophets that the people thought it was was Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. He's actually mentioned in the Matthew passage. You can always get more insight to some of these stories when you read them in other Gospels where they're more the details are given. So here are the three main options. I mean, these are really good options. I mean, John the Baptist, Elijah, these are good people. Jeremiah, other of the prophets, good people, but they're not Jesus. By and large, the crowd still wasn't getting it, even though Jesus was performing miracles and preaching with authority like they'd never seen before. These are good people, but they're short of Jesus. Now Jesus asked the second question, but who do you all, his disciples, say that I am? At this moment, Peter steps up with his wording. And I'm sure as Jesus asked the first question, different ones were chiming in. Oh, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say, who do you say that I am? And Peter steps up as the spokesman for the group. And he responds, you are the Christ. What amazing words from Peter. It's probably his finest moment early on in his life and ministry. Great moments for Peter. He responds as a spokesman for the whole group of disciples, and I guess the rest of them are standing around, yeah, 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 what what, what he said, yeah, yeah. I think we need to remember that there were days that went on before this where the disciples did not know who Jesus was. But at this point now, after two years, they know who he is. And Peter gets an A-plus for his comment here. He is, you are the Christ. Now, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Jesus Christ. Notice the definite article in front of Christ. The. You are the Christ. Christ is the word that means Messiah, the anointed one. They get who Jesus is now. They hadn't always. Not too many chapters before this, they're out at sea, and and Jesus ends up stilling the storm and calming the waves, and they look at Jesus and they say, who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? They didn't quite have it figured out at that point, but now they've got it figured out, and they nail it. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. They know who he is. Peter gets an A+. Enjoy your A+, Peter, because in about two minutes, you're going to really mess up, and you're going to get an F. But at the moment, he's cruising along. Jesus says at the close of this, he warns them not to tell anyone about him. Why would he do that if he's the Messiah? Wouldn't you want everyone to know? He's got six months left to get these guys trained. He's heading for Jerusalem already. He knows what's coming. The religious leaders are already determined they must kill Jesus. And Jesus is not willing now to have that fire stoked. It's too early He's got to train these guys. And believe me, they need training as we're about to discover as Jesus will clarify in a few moments what his mission is. They're blown away by the mission. They don't yet understand it. And they're going to have to carry that mission out. They've got a lot to learn about him yet. 
There are a lot of people today that have their opinions of what Jesus is, and it might be something other than John the Baptist, Elijah, or Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. They might credit Jesus with a whole lot of nice things. But if you asked yourself that question, who do people say that I am? Or in Jesus' second question, who do you say that I am? <clears throat> How would you respond? Careful. Your eternity might be in the balances on this one. This is an important question to get right. Maybe you've been on a spiritual journey for a while trying to figure the Jesus thing out and who is he and what did he do for me and there's this question is very important. Who do you say that I am? Well, you see how the disciples respond through Peter. You're the Christ, you're the Messiah. Great! Now Jesus is ready to go into teaching mode. If you know that I'm the Christ, that's the first most important step that you can make. Now comes step two. Now comes the mission. And so as we settle into verses 31, 32, and 33, we have to understand the mission. And so Jesus says, and he began teaching them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. I've underlined four words here. Suffer, reject, killed, rise. Jesus is in teaching mode here. These four words summarize the message of Jesus. The disciples are stunned. This to them is incomprehensible. Everything they've been told about the Messiah is now out. They have to be retrained for the mission that is ahead of them. This is contrary to what they expected. They had been taught by their religious leaders, that the Messiah would come and help them gain victory over all of their oppressors, including Rome. And that Jesus would bring in his own kingdom, and he would defeat their enemies, and they would get to rule and reign. Yay, cool, this is great. No, it's not a message of a literal earthly kingdom to wipe out your oppressors. It is a message of Suffering, rejection, killed, raised again on the third day. The disciples are stunned, confused, bewildered. The six-month training has now begun. Isn't it interesting that the first eight chapters of Mark are all about the early ministries in the public areas, and then the last eight, eight and eight, the last eight focus on the final months of the life of Christ. Jesus is now training them. He is preparing for what is coming. And in verse 32, he spoke plainly about this. What his mission was. And Peter takes him aside and begins to rebuke him. The guy who just got the A plus now thinks he can pull the teacher aside and straighten the teacher out. Of course, Peter gets an F on this one. He begins to rebuke Jesus. 
But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Now the teacher rebukes the student. Same Greek word. Use Peter's trying to rebuke Jesus. Now Jesus rebukes Peter. And he says what seems to be so harsh, get behind me, Satan. From A plus to F. I think the disciples are stunned again. Peter wants to violently protest, but obviously Jesus is doing something else here and preparing them. I'm amazed how it is possible for a friendly voice to actually voice the words of Satan, the plan of Satan. Have you ever been in a situation where a good person in your life, someone that you trust, speaks something that is wrong? It's incorrect? It is not the plan of God. Peter's off track here. He says, get behind me, Satan. Have you ever heard those words of Jesus before? Nod your heads, yes. Yes, we've heard them. We have. Remember the temptation scene? Satan is tempting Jesus. One of the temptations, he allows Jesus to overlook the nations of the world and says, if you'll bow down to me and worship, no cross necessary. Shortcut. You you can skip all that. And Jesus says what? Get behind me, Satan. Satan will always try to minimize the death and the resurrection of Jesus. He will always suggest there's another way to heaven. Peter had to be rebuked in very strong words here because what he was saying was much more in alignment with the kingdom of Satan than the kingdom of God. So now that we have understood who Jesus is, the Messiah, and now we've understood what his mission is, obviously, for suffering, for death, for resurrection, we get it. Now Jesus addresses you and me directly as he addresses his disciples. Now it's time to understand what a follower, a disciple of Jesus is really like. You're going to have to look in the mirror like I've done this week. How am I doing as a disciple? I mean, if Jesus is talking about cross work, his kingdom's going to be much different than you or I imagine. Are we prepared? Here's his understanding, Jesus' understanding of what true followers, disciples are like. Starting in verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with the disciples and he said, Anyone, if anyone come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Everyone is stunned. 
I thought we were going to be ruling and reigning. I thought we were going to be like heads of kingdoms. No, you will deny self and you will pick up your cross. Deny is the opposite way of what we're thinking. Deny self, what you're thinking. I am not talking about simply denying things in your life. I'm talking about denying yourself what you want. Some Christians run around and they make a bunch of rules and all of that, and they deny themselves certainly certain things, but that doesn't mean they are denying themselves and what they want. Jesus wants us to deny what we would want and give it all to him. One of my heroes is a pastor from World War II, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I like reading Bonhoeffer. I'm always challenged by him. Regarding this very thing, Bonhoeffer said, to deny oneself is to beware only of Christ and no more of self. I don't even think about myself anymore. It's all about Jesus. Bonhoeffer continues, to see him who goes before and no more road which is too difficult. We don't look at the difficulties of the road. We simply follow Jesus. It's not about the difficulty of the road. It's about Jesus. Denying self. Taking up his cross. Every disciple must take up their cross. Unfortunately, this is one of the big most interpreted, misinterpreted sections of New Testament Scripture because you talk to most Christians, well, my cross is my illness or my disability or my financial problem or some other trial in life. That is not your cross. We have to stop thinking that. We're diluting what Christ is demanding of our lives. In this day, they knew exactly what Jesus was saying. We don't. We need to understand what Jesus was saying and what they knew he was saying. The Jews were under Rome, and Rome had popularized crucifixion. They had used it more than any government before them. They used it to try to crush revolts against Rome. Historical records tell us that the Romans crucified about 30,000 Jews in the day of Christ. Jesus was one of those. It was not a unique crucifixion. 30,000 Jews. Rebellion against Rome. Any Jew was used to walking outside of town or their city and seeing crosses on the main road with Jews on the crosses. They knew exactly what that meant. Rome is in charge. Jesus says, I want you to pick up your cross and follow me. I want you to deny yourself. I want you to pick up your cross. The cross is not a symbol of suffering. It is that, but it's so much more. It's actually a symbol of death, dying to self. Please don't miss this. 
Please do not water down what Jesus is teaching in this passage, thinking it's your trial or difficulty that you're going through. That might be a little corner of it. Jesus is saying, deny yourself and die to self. Pick up your cross, your symbol of death, and die to self. Interestingly, Jesus asks nothing of us that he himself is not prepared to do. You know where that goes, don't you, the cross? He was first. For followers of Jesus, it is a procession of crosses, and Jesus leads the way. He gave his life for you. Will you give your life for him? This is what it means to be a follower of Christ. If you know your World War II history, this is the march of death. Dying to what you want in life. A one-time decision, I will follow Christ no matter what. And then every day, getting up and picking up that cross. And what does it mean today to die to what I want and to live for what he wants? This is precisely what Jesus is saying. Deny, die to yourself. Then Jesus continues with a paradox in verse 35. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. Everybody's hanging on to life. There are me moments. What they want, that is a surefire way to miss the priority of your life. Focusing on self. Jesus is saying, focus on me. When it's hard, focus on me. Jesus goes on to say, what good would it be for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his own soul? I mean, you can focus on self and what you want, and you can achieve a whole lot in this life. And then how much does that really weigh for all of eternity? Eternity! Eternity! This life is hardly but a bleep on the radar screen of eternity. Jesus says, focus on him. Jesus concludes with a question in this section when he says, or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? What are you willing to give of Jesus for in your life? Are you investing your life for him? Or are you investing it in what you want? Your life is a whole lot like spending money. You like to spend money? I don't have any. You like to spend it when you have it? Spend your life for Jesus. Because if you simply hoard your life, you will end up losing it and it will not be invested for eternity. Jesus is being very clear about his demands for his followers. He is bringing a kingdom. It's going to be very different than what the disciples were expecting.
Some Christians today want to treat their Christianity like TV watching. Sit there passively and just take it in. React, laugh a little, cry at a Hallmark movie. Enjoy. But passively observe. Not active. They come to church and they want to sit and think this is their Christian faith. Well, they love their church and they love the ministries that maybe they're involved in a little bit. Got to control that though because life's busy and you got a lot of other things to do. For many, a strange unhappiness pervades their lives. Maybe even a darkness, a sense that their life isn't counting. I wonder where that comes from. To not deny self and to die to self means you will pursue self. There's never such a small package as a person wrapped up in themselves. Many Christians want choices in their life. Jesus says no choices, just death. Christians today want a full-service church that offer everything that they're looking for, but they don't want to be full-service Christians following Jesus and Him alone. It's sort of like the Marines. They're looking for a few good men and women to invest their lives. Would you be that person today? Denying self, picking up your cross and investing your life and not hoarding your life for yourself. We sometimes say that life is a gift from God and what we do with it is our gift back to Him. This is it. Right here. Jesus says in verse 38, the last verse of the chapter, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes into his Father's glory with the holy angels. Afraid for people to know that you're a Christian. Oh, they won't understand. They'll think I'm one of them. Die to self. If you're ashamed of Jesus, he will be ashamed of you. There will be no glory in heaven. Jesus was not ashamed to die for you. Will you be ashamed to die for Jesus every day of your life? Perhaps you're here today and you've been sorting out for a while. Maybe it's taken you a couple of years like it took the disciples to really realize who Jesus was. And you're saying, okay, I'm starting to get it. All right, good, you're ready for the next step. Deny self, pick up your cross. Begins with a moment, a prayer to God. 
making sure you know him as savior from your sin and that your sin is forgiven. That's why he came, to suffer on that cross for your sin and mine so we could be forgiven. Start there. Ask him to forgive your sins. Say it in your own words. Loves to hear from you. He does. Just ask him to forgive you and you can be sure he'll do it. And then begin the process of every day picking up your cross and denying what you want and following this loving Savior, investing your life, everything for Him. Not trying to balance, oh, I give a little bit here to God and His church, and then everything for Jesus. This is your privilege. Be bold, don't be ashamed. Be bold for Christ. This world needs to see and hear from people that are picking up their cross to follow Jesus every day. Thank you, our Father, for the challenge of your word. Thank you for this amazing passage. Instruct our hearts through it. Call us back to the priorities of what you have for our lives because everything in the world is pushing us toward doing our own thing, whatever that might be. May our thing be your thing. Thank you in Jesus' name, amen.